Hey everyone, I'm Brian Conley of Hunters HD Gold, and you're listening to Season 2 of Hunters HD Gold Behind the Lens. This podcast takes a deep dive into what it takes to be a match director, manufacturer, sponsored shooter, or just an everyday shooter trying to win his or her first major. So sit back and enjoy this episode of Hunters HD Gold Behind the Lens. Welcome back to another episode of Hunter's HD Go Behind the Lens. Today we're going to have some show and tell as well. So there will be a situation where you may want to catch it on the YouTube channel. So go to hunt, just search Hunter's HD Go on YouTube and you'll be able to see some of the stuff we're going to talk about later in the podcast. But I am sitting down today with Elsie Dunwoody, the owner of EWD Designs. How are you doing, brother? I'm doing well, Brian. Man, it's so good. I've been wanting to do this for a while because I travel all over the United States. You've listened to the podcast as well and you've listened to some of the manufacturers I've talked to but to be able to actually talk to somebody that makes everything from the ground up I wanted to let other people know what I know about you but before we get into EWD designs um when did you first start shooting when did you first even pick up a gun I know you're kind of a hunter now but when did this all start for you I think uh, age 11 uh, was when I was gifted my first rifle by my father Uh, we grew up on a horse farm and we had a uh, horse named Cloudburst that way back this is back in the 70s late 70s right i paid fifty thousand dollars for him they brought him home they turned him loose on the farm and he stepped into a groundhog hole wait a minute 1970 fifty thousand dollars for a horse for a horse that just grazed in the fields it was a horse that broke it was the first race horse that sided downs to break the uh, two minute uh mile marker oh so wait a minute there's a race horse. race horse oh okay now i didn't know that at all that yes. makes okay so i thought buying a race car no no, <laughs> you, no, bought no. A ra- you bought a race horse correct my father was a grand national sulky champion what does that uh, mean uh it meant that he traveled the european circuit as well as the u.s and what kind of champion uh a sulky horse champion what is sulky horse? so before nascar Okay. which was American's pastime, you right. know, back in the 60s and 70s, from back in the 30s, let's say, to late 60s, early 70s, the American NASCAR was sulky racing. Okay. And it had a huge redneck. It was a, it was the redneck crowd that follows NASCAR, used to follow the horse racing. And you had all these country fairs uh, throughout the United States, and they came up with a point system, and the jockeys would travel from state to state, fair to fair, country to country. Wait a minute. It's like a turkey derby race on no, the back no, of a horse? No, like, they're not riding a horse. It's a oh. sulky. So it's a two-wheeled wagon. See, I don't know anything about horses. They're so educate me and our, and our customers because there's got to be people that listen and that don't know yeah, it it's, <laughs> it's a sport that really has uh, died down over the last 20 or 30 years. NASCAR basically took the following of the, So it's like something from the Roman times where people much, ride like behind chariot, a chariot ride. Yeah, only they're seated and it's a race bike sulky i mean they're, they're very advanced. now i have seen this i just didn't know what it was called yeah sulky racing okay so uh my father presented me with a 30-06 at the age of 11 or 12 and a box of shells let me back up the <laughs> horse stepped in a groundhog hole and broke its leg was here one day and we had to put it to sleep whoa 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 you bought a fifty thousand. Your dad, my dad, bought a fifty thousand dollar horse. That is correct. That had won all these, broke these broke records. Broke the two mile record, and we were going to use him as a breeding line. My dad uh, and his business partners, they average about one hundred and fifty head of horses, and they uh, were big believers in breeding the winners instead of finding the winners. Okay, they bred the winners, and um, you had it one day, one day, and it broke its leg, and uh, we called the vet, and the vet had to come out and put it to sleep. Um, so insurance how does that work not I, back mean, then. I know not i mean 
so what did your dad do for a living? <laughs> uh, he, he was a sulky racer. That's uh, all he full, did. That's all he did. He was a full-time sulky racer. And he had business partners where they would go together and buy blocks of horses and they had a breeding program. Uh, but essentially, he was a trainer and a racer for multiple owners. So you could have your own stables, your own line of horses, but you could hire my dad and my dad would race your horses in the circuit for you. So, so he would go to a track and he not only would race his horses, right. but he would race two or three other people's horses in different classes as well. Well, that's ex it, it, okay. At 1970, yeah. $50,000. A lot of money. Did that Break the family? My dad carried a wad of cash. Back then, it wasn't banks. It was all cash. Okay. And I don't uh, want to get know. too personal. I'm no, just no, curious no. because it, you talk about, you know, that it's was the way, It's the way they lived. It yeah. was, you know, these guys had been through the Great Depression and World War II. And, okay. Uh, they didn't trust any banks. Any, It was all cash and carry. They carried huge amounts of cash. Right. Uh, my dad had what he wasn't called a bodyguard, but that's definitely what he was that traveled the circuit with that and, and he carried a gun and right. he made sure nobody messed with that. Uh, and he basically was our step grandfather as well. So. Right. So did he win a lot of races? He did. Um, at Scioto Downs, he won over 500 races, which is a local track here in Columbus. Uh, and he was awarded the winningest jockey in the history of, of Scioto Downs. I had no, I've known you for six years and had no idea yep. this was going on. Yep. That's so cool. It was, it was, we were really blessed. We got to travel to Germany yeah. or, or down to Florida or Chicago. As kids, once we got big enough, we could travel the circuit with them. Dad always wanted us boys with him. Did so. you ever, did you ever race yourself? I'll tell you what, my brother was the one that was being groomed to oh, okay. take over as the the jockey and so forth. I was really in big into sports and uh my I was I was trying to become a college athlete. I wasn't focusing so much on the horses. I'll be honest with you, when you've been bit, kicked, stomped, they race horses are some of the meanest <laughs> animals on the face. I've been drug. I mean so I had no love for these horses. I mean, it's truth be known. And I never wanted to do that for the rest of my life. Right. You know? So, right. Um, so is there like a Hall of Fame or anything that your dad's so a part of? So if you go of? over to uh, Scioto Downs now, they're in the clubhouse. Now, I'm ashamed to say it's probably been 20 years since I've been right. to Scioto Downs. But there used to be a four or five foot mural of him painted on the wall of my dad. Wow. So he made a few movies. He made a movie he called... Uh, movies? Yeah, he was, uh, he was a jockey. It was a love story with uh, another actress. And it was a racehorse jockey like... Mickey Rooney era is back. Black and white movies is what he made. Three of them. I have them on CD. I had them converted from VHS tapes. What are CD. the name of the movies? Do you remember? Uh, it's the blue. It's the it's the blue gla blue grass of Kentucky, the green grass of Wyoming. Okay. And Settlers Downs. Right. Um, they're black and white. You wouldn't know any of the famous actors that are in there. I, I actually have a, a tub of a bunch of black and white photos for autographs. And I got to tell you, you know, it, it, in a black and white photo, if there's a movie star 
that is just drop dead gorgeous in black and white from back in the, you know, we're talking like Betty 40s, White. Yeah, like 40s, <laughs> 50s, back in the 60s. You know, my, my dad also was a stunt driver. So when they made other movies, and remember, I'm talking, it's just like NASCAR back in the day. Uh, a stunt driver for horses for or horses. stunt Okay, so, so not, he, not a stunt driver in a car. No, no. He okay. would be a stunt driver for horses in sulky races, which were part of the movies. And they're always part of the drama would be there'd be a big pile up of horses wrecks right my dad had a rope tied to the front leg on the horse and as they were going to wherever corner they were supposed to be he'd pull that rope get the horse off gate it would crash he would crash with it they crash into two or three other stunt uh doubles and stunt people that were in the race uh it's pretty cool what did your pretty mom cool. think about this my mom uh she loved she was she was a big part of it okay uh, she helped with the horses she Traveled to the events. Uh, my mother was from Nuremberg, Germany. Okay. And she sold uh, prescription magazines like Vanity Fair and things like that. She got to come to the U.S. Uh, sponsored to work for this company selling magazines. And she met my dad at a racetrack um, out west. And then the rest is they were married for 29 years and three kids. And, you know, they, they had a very happy marriage. Okay. My mom my mom idolized my dad. What a cool story. Yeah. What a cool story. Yeah, thank you. That is that's 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 it's so funny that you you that we're talking about this because literally today on a on a, an appointment uh trying to get some definitive answers about some parts that we're trying to make for a company, the procurement guy that I ran into, and I'm not gonna say the companies or names, but he looked at me and he said, You wouldn't happen to know Ed Dunwoody, would you? And I look, he said, because you look startlingly like him. I go, yeah, that was my dad. And he's like, oh, my goodness, you got to be kidding me. You could just see the glow. He goes, I idolized your dad. I got autographed pictures from him. I used to follow him around at the fairgrounds and try to act like he did. And this gentleman now still owns 50 head of racing horses, and he's in his He's in his late 60s, this wow. guy that I met today. Yeah. So just, I mean, as little as today, completely off Kelter. My dad's been, uh, my dad passed away, I think, in 82. Right. So he's been gone a really long time, and it never ceases to amaze me to run into people. And it, and in business, it has really helped me quite a bit when, right. when they find out that, well, I knew your dad. So he was pretty well known, and it, it was kind of uh uh, gratuitous today that this gentleman knew my father and was right. so excited and it was supposed to be like a 10 or 15 minute consultation it turned into a couple hours right once we got to talk and race horses and who the drivers we knew and it's funny a lot of the current drivers that are racing in the last 15 or 20 years their dads <laughs> learned how to race from my dad my dad right. mentored a lot of a lot of other racers i mean he he always had more than most racers, and he was very generous uh, with money, um, giving them a place to stay if they were down on their luck. If they weren't having any winning rides, he would give them a winning ride. Right. Uh, things like that. And he was known in the industry for that. Wow. Very giving. When your dad passed away in, in the early 80s, did you was, did anybody take over the business, or what, what happened? So uh, my dad was 60. Uh, one when I was conceived. Okay. So uh, by the time in the eighties, he's pushing like 70, 72. Oh, wow. 73. Okay. Um, at that time, he was not training and racing anymore, but we owned about 30 horses and he had a couple of business partners 
and he was basically guiding the breeding program and things like that. Now, he got up every morning at four o'clock in the morning, was in the horse barn feeding and washing and stirring or right. shoe horse. He was a very good farrier. And then being a successful race uh, winner, it, it, you have to have all the cards. My dad knew the bloodlines, how to break them of bad habits. And he also knew farrying very well. So he could shoe a horse to improve their pace or their trot by matching different weights and different types of shoes and things like that. He really was a horse whisperer. Wow. That is so cool. Thank you for sharing that with yeah. me. Um, let's go back to a story though. Because so, you, so he gives me a gun. Yeah, and yeah, he no, says, at 11 years old. At 11 years old. And it's a 30 alt 6 I didn't have a 22. <laughs> All I, had, I went from BB guns to a 30 alt 6 So when you shot this gun for the first time and it knocked you down. No, 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 no. no That's pretty good. I bailed hay and shoveled uh, manure. I was a okay. pretty stout young man. Okay. <laughs> it was not a not a dainty daisy, as okay. they'll say. But he told me, he said, I will give you a dollar for every groundhog that you kill. And when you get off of school, your only job is to go groundhog hunting. A 30 alt six and a groundhog. There's no, there, what is left of well, evidence bringing home a tail? I'm going to be, oh, yeah. no, actually, actually, I figured out early on if you just cut a foot off and you bring your foot home. My dad, my dad, you had to prove that you got it. He just didn't, he didn't come back and say, hey, I got eight, dad. And he goes, here's eight bucks. So I'll, I'll fast forward that story uh, about a year and a That's half. That's all that's left is a leg and a tail. <laughs> exactly exactly uh, about a year and a half into this uh now re back in the younger days there were huge farms there wasn't a bunch of broken up blocks okay and all the farmers knew each other and the standing rule was you're welcome to hunt and to come on my property you don't have to come and ask remember there's no smartphones and none of this stuff back then of course it was a party line that five people <laughs> shared together right. wait for somebody to get off for yep. you to get on my grandparents had those in texas i and, remember uh, and and he, a year and a half in i'm turn i'm still turning in like 15 20 groundhogs a week <laughs> and and he didn't tell me that look that's only for our 200 acres so I wiped them out on our farm, like when like three or four months, I start going to the neighbor's farm. I'm going like three, four farms over. And it took dad a, quite a while to catch on to. So, so well, how can there be these many groundhogs on our farm? And I said, well, they're not on our farm. I'm hunting Hughes's farm. I'm, I'm hunting the Bell's farm. I'm a lot. And he's like, well, that ain't part of the deal. I said, you didn't define that it had to be on. Because, you know, realize, this is when your sales career began. Exactly. Exactly. You realize it kept me from bailing hay, shoveling manure, getting uh, going to the sawmill, getting stuff for the horses bedding, right. uh, bathing the horses, At walking years the horses. Old. All I had to do was get off that school bus, get that 30-06, a box of shells, make a bologna sandwich, and get me a cup of Kool-Aid, and I was back out the door till dark. What was your favorite flavor of Kool-Aid? Cherry. Cherry. <laughs> I don't know why I asked that, but I drank Kool-Aid as well. I'm just curious. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, that sir. is so wonderful. So, so this went on from eleven to when did he? When did when did the when well, did the budget I mean, get even, cut back? <laughs> even when he, even though he quit um, the bounty, the right. fire within me to hunt, okay, had been lit. There was, I mean, it, it, the groundhog started it all, right? But after that, man, I hunted anything and everything. Uh, was very blessed, and Wanny uh, Griffith uh, was at work for my dad. He kind of was personal security, but and my dad raised him like a son. And he was from West Virginia, and he was the ninth 
he there was nine kids in his family and he was the oldest boy and he fed all his family by hunting in right. West Virginia. So I don't even really think he went to school. Wow. But when it came to knowing animals, habitat and hunting, this guy hunted to eat and to feed eight other mouths in a right. family. So right. he was kind of like the Daniel Boone of hunting. And because we had such a great farm and such great wildlife, uh, would came and got me at a very young age and taught mm -hmm. me deer hunting, uh, coon hunting, <clears throat> fox hunting. I mean, anything. And, and you have to remember back in these days as well, a coon hide was worth 35 to $65 each. A gray fox was worth 50 bucks. A red fox could be worth as much as $75. Mush rats, which you trapped in a pond, you know, they're worth seven bucks. So it was out where I lived and even people that had regular jobs, they subsidized their income or their hobbies or their properties by trapping and hunting and killing. So right. it was about respecting the game, eating the game and gaining the financial rewards of the game that you hunted. Right. And I was very blessed to learn from a very, very talented guy. And, you know, I'm did your dad ever go with you? Um, I hunted a lot with my, my dad was a big pheasant hunter and okay. uh, pheasant and grouse is really was his thing. Bobtail quail. So he liked bird dogs and, and uh, bird hunting, mm -hmm. but not the through the brush over briars, you know, deer. And he didn't like to hunt all the, the species. He had a few favorites. And, and remember now he's 65 to 70, right. 72 years old. Guani was 40, 42 years old, grew okay. up in the mountains, went seven days. I mean, if he wasn't working, he was hunting. I don't think that now, man ever slept. You made a comment. This is this is West Virginia. No, uh, Wani lived on the farm. Okay. He had a, he had a place. My dad put a place on the farm okay. for him, but my dad met him in West Virginia at okay. a, at okay. a West Virginia racetrack. Wani was looking for work. Mm -hmm. So, uh, he gave him a job and fell in love. And I want to idolize my dad. My dad moved into Ohio. I think, uh, he was paying him, you know, five, $600 a week, which was unheard of money in west virginia right you know they're working coal mines for five six hundred dollars a month wow so uh wani felt he had a great debt to the dunwoody family uh and i and he always looked out for me and my brother and sisters we just lost wani a year before last oh really so, yeah he we just lost him recently and and he looked out for me my entire adult life wow he really was the extension of my father you okay. Know, through he, my life. So when he passed away, it was um, it was pretty tough. I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. We uh, we're not going to talk about that. Okay. Fair enough. But that's one of those things that you know having a mentor like that yeah. is amazing. Yeah. And to be able to do that because you know, your dad being so much older to have kids, that's a whole nother thing altogether. What was really so. good for me was my three girls. Yeah. Uh, he was very big into their life. So my girls nice. had the grandpa nice. figure and he knew my dad and he would tell stories. You know what I mean? So he, he kept my dad alive with my kids. You had which, the history, which to me means everything. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm forever in his debt for educating them on who they, where they came from right. and who they are. That's so cool. That's yeah. so cool. So when you, you know, you didn't go into the father's business. You no. decided to go to to school and go. You said you want to be a a professional 
college player? I wanted to play football. Wanted to play football. Uh, or wrestling. Okay, wrestling. Okay. And uh, I started in Biddy League. I played Biddy League junior high and, and high school and <clears throat> just really had the fire. Uh, and then when I uh, started in college, I realized um, my my father was passed away. My mom's trying to hang on to all the properties and raise three kids. And, right. you know, we didn't have the funds that we had when my dad was alive. So mm-hmm. my brother and my sister, my dad was alive and was able to support them in their adultness of trade schools or colleges. So what happened to me by changing, I changed my dream at 16 to make book money and to eat. I took a night job in a machine shop. Okay. So I was going to school during the day and I was working in a machine shop at at night. So this all started at 16. At 16. Wow. Well, you have to realize I I bought my own first car. I bought all my own school clothes. Mm -hmm. I was pouring concrete. And putting in uh, construction equipment from 15, right. 14, 15. Uh, and then wanted to get out of that. When I went into college, I went into the machine shop. And I got to tell you, there was just something about the smoke, the cut of metal, the with the it, it, it's like a I'll equate it to a fly getting drawn to a light. Right. That once you walked in and you were immersed in manufacturing, CNC manufacturing, and this place is making parts for the space shuttle. It was a General Electric shop. They were really? working with Inconel, Monel, Titanium, uh, very high-end exotic material, very exotic equipment. Okay. And uh, there was a second ship uh, supervisor. His name was Keith Waterfield, and, and I'll get back to him in just a second. <laughs> But Keith worked second shift. I started in uh, with him, and he goes, you know, I've watched your work, and if you'll come to third shift, I'll let you run equipment that you're not supposed to get to run for like three or four years, right. and I'll teach you. Because I was in a apprenticeship program to get a journeyman's uh, machinist card, and uh, I, I next day I put in, nobody wanted to work third shift. So when anybody said, hey, I, I want to work third shift, it didn't take but two days, and I was on third shift, and uh over the next eight years, uh, Keith Waterfield taught me everything that started my manufacturing and my makerisms. Uh, he taught me feeds and speeds and put me through uh, educations on end mills, drills, taps, uh, how metals react. He taught me G-code. He, he taught me CAD work. Everything that I could retain, Keith would just keep shoveling. As long as I could repeat back, right. or if he could show me to do something and I could do it, then he would give me teach me something else. What parts of the space shuttle did you make? So, Can you talk about it? Yeah, I mean they were military. They were uh, so the Inconel and the Monel and the Titanium were all in their fuel systems. Uh, oh, but, but you know where I'm going with this question. So, so let me tell. Let's just fast forward to that. Okay, I'm going let's to 80s. For- I'm going to 1986. Let's fast forward to that. Okay, it's funny that you say that. I had been there three years. Okay, we had parts on that space shuttle. Holy cow! So Garvin, Tim Garvin was the owner of uh, Capital Technologies, is a company we worked at. Tim lived in Cincinnati. So to reward the shop, Tim had a caterer come in. They put up three movie projector size screens. Right. They ordered pizza and wings, and we had this huge party. There was 40-some machinists set up in our cafeteria area, and all those screens put up. And when that, to watch that launch, 
you could hear all these people talking. Everybody's excited. I mean, it was really cool. Oh, we're, yeah. we're excited. Yeah. Our stuff is going into outer space, yeah. right? And uh, man, it's going up. And when it went kaboom, yeah, you could have you could have heard a, a a mouse hiccup at Capital Technology. The room was in stunned silence. Holy! I mean, cow. we literally we all sat there. I don't know, maybe eight ten minutes. Some people started crying. Uh, it was very, it was one of the most tensest things that I've ever, that I've ever been a part of. And the owner of the company looks over and I'm sitting at the table with Keith Waterfield and he pretty much is the smartest guy in the company. And Tim looks at Keith and says, please, God, tell me that there's no way it could have been anything that we made that made that blow up. Right. And, you know, right now it's pretty funny, right? Okay, it's okay. a pretty funny story. But Keith looked at me how the hell would I know if what we did made it blow up? I mean, and literally those two are the only ones talking in there and uh, definitely dampered the party. Oh, and they yeah. shut it down and they brought in grief counselors from Cincinnati, the mothership. And uh, yeah, that was messed up. We, we were very, very happy to find out that it had nothing to do with any of the parts that we made. Did you have people from NASA come to the factory? Oh, let me tell you what. Oh, let me tell you the next part of that story. <laughs> so that we worked another day and a day, two days afterward, we're on <clears throat> third shift. It was about 11, 15, 11, 30 at night. We had ordered pizza. Me and Keith ordered pizza for the, we all got together and pitched money. Right. And on the security cameras, we see headlights rolling in. Uh, I know a control room where we wrote our programs. What time at night? Uh, 11, 15, 11, 30 at night. <laughs> we seen headlights on the cameras and we're working on a program, me and Keith. And Keith goes, pizza's here, man. Hands me the money. Goes, go, go pay for the pizza. So I walk out the back overhead door. There's about 12 black four-door SUVs. There's a wrecker with an all-terrain forklift on it and U.S. Marshals getting out of them with the black jackets and the U.S. Marshals uh, emblem on the back and told us to step away from the machines, put everything down, don't touch anything. And they took... They outside the plant, we had all of our chip bins to recycle because it's Inconel, it's Monel, it's titanium, it's very expensive chips. They loaded all the chips up, all the barrels up onto the tow truck, took all the chip barrels from the machines that we were all running, loaded those up, and told us to have a good night and left. Now <laughs> The good news is <laughs> nothing ever got shadowed on Capital Tech. I think what they were investigating was were we using the right material for the parts because they're they're going down that rabbit hole of somebody supplied something and it wasn't what it was supposed to be. Right. At this time Because when you're dealing with government contracts like that, General every, Electric. General Electric, everything has to be made in the United General States. General Electric. Everything's got to be General American. Electric was the most and they're not really that strong of a force in manufacturing now now but back in the 70s and 80s they were it right i mean if the government wanted something done they went to general electric and general electric made it happen wow so i was uh yeah we we had parts on that but it wasn't any of ours that made it go boom <laughs> wow I, I i i don't know how the phone call would have been from keith going to the owner or president of the company saying 
Um, there's U.S. Marshals here, but I'm not going to jail. So <laughs> what do I do? I said, Keith, I, I go into the control room and I said, now I want to give you a mental image of Keith. He's six foot four, six foot five. Okay. He's got a beard, wears a do rag, got a uh, pirate loop in his ear, and he rides a Harley. Okay. Blue jeans, Harley shirt, and and there's he's so intimidating by his size. I thought I I went and I go, hey man, the U.S. Marshals are here. And he looked at me, and goes, the first time I ever really seen him look scared. What do they want? I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, I don't know, man. You're the boss. You go talk. All I'm telling you is it ain't the pizza guy, and I'm not I'm not dealing with that. This is your deal. Did you ever get the pizza? They were yeah, we did. We got the pizza. We got the pizza. But it was so funny that that I mean there was no. No preemptive warning, no, and nothing was ever said about. What it. would they have done if nobody was there at eleven fifteen at night? I think that they were. They, I think they knew. Here's what oh, okay. I think. I think that they came in the middle of the night. That way, you didn't have time to prepare in case leaks got out that they were coming to take your material. Holy so, cow! I think what really happened is they drove to another parking lot somewhere, and they. There is actually a gun that you can point at steel, and it will tell you the molecular structure and what grade and what elements and minerals. we It's commonly used now in aerospace and manufacturing. Right. But back in those days, the military <clears throat> had it, and I guarantee you they gunned all those chips. They all came up to what they were supposed to be. Right. And then, of course, everybody found out it's a piece of foam that knocked a hole Right. Right. And it wasn't anything to do with any of the machine. You know, there was no malfunction. Exactly. So at that point, it just kind of all, you know, and we used to tease Tim Garvin like, hey, are you going to ask for our chips back? And he'd give us the old, <laughs> I ain't going to talk to him. I'm just glad it's over. So you never got anything back. Oh, no. We, and not only did we not ever get anything back, nothing was ever said of it. It was like, it was like, uh, you know, I no letters or nothing. No, nothing. have a search warrant back then. Oh yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. They walked right up. Just a search key. warrant, but that was it. They, not. They had a seizure warrant. Seizure. They didn't okay. have a search warrant, but they didn't bring anything back. No. You know, when the government does that, what do they do with all this stuff? I don't know. And there's got to be a, there's like a place. I mean, somewhere it had to be thirty, forty thousand bucks worth of chips. It Holy wasn't like cow. it was two or three barrels. I right. mean, I think we were running forty spindles in that shop. Right. Uh, so it was. Three or four weeks of chips, you know, they came to pick them up once a month. Right. So there was quite a bit of a steal there. But right. I think we were making so much money doing General Electric work, nobody right. was going to say a word about 30 grand worth of chips. <laughs> you know, we're doing 40, 50 million dollars a year wow. worth of aerospace work. Nobody's going to say anything well, about chips. Well, let's take a quick break, go to one of our sponsors, and we'll follow up with some more stuff. All righty. This week's podcast is brought to you by Connor Gold. Kana Gold is a premier lifestyle brand for those who work hard and play harder. There are many hemp companies out there that get lost in the crowd, but Kana Gold sets the gold standard with its premier line of products. When traveling all around with a magical mystery tour to different matches, I travel around with lots of different flavors, including pink grapefruit, candy apple, and vanilla cherry. Make sure to stop by and get some for yourself. They are all zero calories, zero sugar, use organic hemp, and are THC and CBD free. Competitive shooters love them because there's no shakes, no headaches, and no crash. When you order from conagoldhemp.com, make sure to use discount code HUNTERSHD for another 20% off. So, you know, let's move on a little bit okay. because we could talk about the yeah, story. I, yeah. I love the stories. I, I, I hope our audience does too. But so you're, you started there at 16. Mm -hmm. You worked there for eight years. Mm -hmm. 
And then what made you decide to leave GE? Was another other opportunity? So when I started out there, it was uh, I had really not decided to make it a career. I okay. was like making money to eat, rent, okay. buy books, okay. right? Uh, but very quickly, you know, when you realize, man, my college degree in business starts out, if you can find a job yeah. for about $30,000 a year, I'm making 60 Yep, as a machinist. At 20 nothing a, years old. Yeah. And so it was a no brainer for me. Makes sense. Coming off of, you know, I, I've always been driven, right? Right. Uh, and knowing that, man, I can make 60 grand. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not a dumb man. I went to where the money was at. Right. And I truly love the metal. I truly love making stuff. Well, when did you start making things for yourself? Because that's what, that's how I met you. And I'll give a little backstory. We met each other about six years ago, I guess. Maybe, maybe a little bit shorter than that. Are it's you going to tell the, the no, whole, okay. not getting all that. That's a whole other story. But when I met that's you. That's another podcast. It's another podcast altogether, okay. how, how we met. It's a wonderful story. And we've become best friends because of it. And, but you, you when I met you, it was, it was through um, Steve Foster. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, had all these knives and things that were being made that you were a part of. And um, I think I came up to the SASP Nationals. Maybe it's four years ago. So we ain't known each other quite that long. It's only been five years, probably. But I came up to SASP Nationals in Ohio, and I called you up and I said, "Hey, I'd like to, you know, come see you and hang out with you." And you brought me, you know, to your shop, yep. you know, where you're working at and doing some things, you know, with another company. And you were showing me how this stuff was being cut underwater, where you were doing titanium and all this stuff, you know, EDMing, when, uh, when, when, when did you, when did, when did you decide you wanted to start doing knives and, 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 and gun parts? Gosh, you got to go back quite a, uh, so, so long before we met then. So when I left, uh, General Electric, when I left Capital <clears throat> Technologies, which was General Electric, right, I got a really good job and that's why I left them offer with Patel Memorial Institute in Columbus, Ohio. Okay. And Patel is, uh, is a research institute that the government or other companies hire where they have uh, an issue that they need something resolved, something made to resolve the issue. And what Battelle was really big into at the time was military uh, guns, uh, robotic uh, traveling guns, uh, automo bonds. So they were, they were doing futuristic weapons okay. uh, and to get an opportunity to manufacture and be a part of Battelle aside from the money was really cool projects that we were doing. I mean, our shop had a live nuclear reactor in the basement that they were doing testing on. Uh, we blowed, we, we developed and blew up uh, new explosives. Actually, that's where part of different portions of C4 was originally concept chemically made as in Columbus, Ohio. Well, so really? I'm working for Battelle and I am the, I am the machine shop manager and my job was to work with all the different engineers and engineering departments, be it aviation, military, and a lot of it was military and police-funded projects where they gave you a scope of what they wanted you to make or build. And right. we're building 50-caliber um, robots, you know, guns that are inside a robot so military can run a remote-controlled gun in and shoot up stuff. There was a lot of futuristic weapons that I got to make that right. never made it to the light of day never went into production so why do you think that is well i i believe that they go with two or they have a concept and there's two or three ways that they try to achieve the end goal and when it gets to the end of the project 
they pick, they don't go with plan. They don't just have one plan. They got A, B, and C. And I think a lot of the guns were cost prohibited to mass produce mm -hmm. many, too many technical issues over designed. There was many reasons for, uh, a gun or a gun firing system or something like that. Never to get out of the production stage. See, this would explain why I'm at I'm at your shop, um, you know, at your at your farm, which you built a couple of years ago. And this explains why there's always black helicopters around this area <laughs> because you have this knowledge to build some stuff that was never released to the public or military. Had, I actually had a level five security clearance. What does that mean? Uh, so that means that the military could give me to black bag. Uh, we did projects that was that were part of the black budget. Okay, so no no oversight. Okay. Uh, the, and that, and that's usually in the nuclear or explosive side of manufacturing. Right. So they would give me a project. And it's so, so ridiculous the way the government works. Right. I'm the only one that had the clearance. None of the shop had the clearance. So we would literally. They chose you. They, I had, I was the manager and I'm the one that passed all the tests. And because I managed the shop, I'm the one that needed to know everything. So you got to shoot these guns. Oh yeah. Well, I got to do, I got to play with stuff that I can't ever talk about. And well, I can't ever, I mean. We won't say model numbers. <laughs> <laughs> but I got to play with some really next level cool stuff and be a part of it. And it just lit up the fire in me to make, yeah. you know, to want to make guns. I started coming out with cam that designs, was the motivation. trigger stuff. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we had an unlimited budget. If, if what, however crazy you could think of, it didn't matter. You could make it; they would support it, and and it was really a fun. It was really a fun twelve. Years. So you know the designs and how to make a true lightsaber from Star Wars. Almost, almost, almost. Okay, we were, we were when I left there, we almost had it finished. You know, we had the design almost done. So I I really did wow. enjoy. So. They would give me the projects, and literally, you're going to laugh, but in a state-of-the-art machine shop, we would go and we would hang black tarps. There'd be three or four lathes in a row, a few mills, a welding right. area. We would lay, we would put tarps to where the operators couldn't see what the other operator was doing. Right. And I would give you this portion of this build, and you only got to see that and knew that. If you had any questions about fit, form, or functionality... You had to come to me. Normally, the guys talk amongst themselves. They all know what they're making. They try to match up what Jeff's doing with Joe's stuff. And you couldn't do any of that because I'm the only one that had the security clearance. Wow. So it was ridiculous. You're in, a, you know, these machines are a million bucks, half a million dollars, all these state-of-the-art machine tools. And you walk in, climate controlled, eat off the floor, walk in, and there's all these tarps hanging from bar joists. And it yeah. looks like a a scare factory for like a Halloween haunted house is right. what it looks like. Right. And, and the guys didn't really like those black bags. Well, it's, uh, it's funny you say that. Cause I went to Vortex last year and did a tour of their plant. And I was walking through the factory with Ruben and there was this whole big building inside the building and it was all behind frosted glass. And I said, well, that's kind of what's all back there. He goes, well, we can't talk about that. And I said, Oh, I guess that's not part of the tour, huh? And he goes, well, I have clearance, but you don't. That's and, exactly, that's exactly it. And they're and just and fancier than me. Right. I use tarps. They got right. mirrored glass. And then to come know? find out six months later, you know, they got the contract for their army scope. Nice. So that's what, you know, that, nice. I, that I'm, he never told me it was or wasn't. Right. But you have to assume right. there's some stuff going back there for the military. Always. And then you, know, when you never know. They probably got 10 or 12 projects <clears throat> rolling through at one time as well. Did you ever have stuff that y'all designed that you actually saw on the field or that you knew went to the field? 
or do you not know that part of it? Because it, once it was gone, it was gone. We made some 50 caliber machine gun actions mm-hmm. that I have seen in the field. Oh, wow. Um, on limited numbers. And they really ended up being a special forces gun. Okay. And uh, the special forces don't have to take what the military issues. They can pretty much pick okay. what systems they want to run and operate. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I know for a fact that some of our 50 cal stuff made it to the special forces. Makes you feel good about their freedom. And they feel it. really good. A lot better really than good. a space shuttle. You see that? <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Absolutely. No doubt. You know, absolutely. Well, cool. Because when I came to you, I came to see you where you was working at and you were talking about you know, the time where, you know, you everything was made in North Columbus where you're working at before. And you were actually making some parts for an engine, you know, for a plane. And you said you were the only one that had the plans to do this because all the companies back when NAFTA, was it NAFTA that happened? Mm-hmm. That's correct. They sold all their stuff overseas to get stuff made, but you never sold your we, we 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 basically that was an interesting story to me that's why i want to bring that up that's a long story well we're not going to do the long story <laughs> i don't want to do, no, I don't do a long story I do, but, uh, but that was that was very cool to me that you you're you're the part of the stuff you were doing that's like we're not doing this stuff in china we're making it here yeah so um it's called tribal knowledge okay. and a lot of times when you're working with a company or customers and they have design issues mm-hmm. and you straighten out their designs for them um, you can ask to be listed on the print as the main, you're either going to pay me a hundred thousand dollars to do what you need us to do. Right. Because we're the ones making the parts. We hit the issue. We have to fix your drawings, your models, your stuff. Right. Or you can list me on your blueprints as a sole source and I will absorb all those costs. And what that did is it locked us in no matter when the stuff went overseas that kind of take great joy in this. Even the companies that moved their product to China, we've been shipping stuff to China for 20 years because we're the we, they can't when it's nuclear regulated mm-hmm. and that print lists the source. If that source is in business, you have to buy from them regardless. And y'all never sold. No, that's so awesome. No, and I made sure that uh, whenever I could get us on a print, we we're on print. That's so cool. Yeah, that's so cool. Because you, what, you can you, what 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 were you making for engine? Can you talk about that, or is that something you want to get into? Uh, you know, generalities. Really uh, yeah. uh, you know, we did we do we did a lot of lobby seals, uh, jet turbines, uh, fan blades, right. uh, supports, uh, a lot towards uh, the GE platform of motors right. uh, in aircraft. That's we really did cool. A lot of work around that. That was cool because I enjoyed being there because you showed me how a lot of the um. You had some, you had stuff that was a big thing of steel and it was underwater. And I think it was the EDM. EDM. Bear with me because I've been to some places, but I, I see stuff everywhere I go and I don't sure. know, know half the time what I'm looking at unless somebody's making lenses and that makes sense to me. Right. But, you know, you had this steel like this that was being cut out, like grip. That's how it started. That is a 1911 uh, titanium blank grip. So this is titanium. That is titanium. Uh, that was cut by. An EDM machine. And, and how many did you cut at a time back then when you were uh, doing it? So there's a couple tricks to the trade. A lot of places would, and I'm not going to give them away on of this course. podcast. Of course. But uh, normally people would cut that material one at a time. I've figured out a way to get material to conduct electricity 
in a stack motion. Mm -hmm. So we usually process three or four grips or knives at one time. Right. So because what basically this is, is basically the same thing went from this. That made that. That is correct. So that and that's one of your this is one of your designs that you came up with. Yeah, that's one of my hey Jude designs. And we joke about that as makers in the industry as that it's your big first big success. Right. And as a designer and an artist and a maker, you want to move on to other things. You want to have new designs and you you don't want to keep making the same thing. Right. That particular design and that USA flag that that you've got in your hand. This is EWD's Hey Jude song, which means customers always want them. Right. Uh, so I can't ever get away from that design or that one. Right. We just constantly keep remaking them. Because uh, I, I have these in the van that, you know, some, somebody can actually purchase these from me if, they're on a, if they have a 1911 and want to purchase these. I have these in the van. But they got your e, EWD design. EWD logo so in the back. Yeah. How long does something like that take from start to finish? So, so when, you, when I see a piece of metal here. That's been, we know being cut, you know, I've seen that process to go from this to this. How many hours? About 40 hours. 40 hours. Yes, for, sir. For, for one grip or for one for, set. For one set, one total set. set. Okay. So, so what you've got is uh, there's probably, and you have to remember, <clears throat> EDMing is a very slow process. Right. And not so much for the grips. I really did the EDM on the grips just because it's the easiest way to blank titanium. Right. But when we, for the knife, the re- real reasoning behind why we, run this stuff on the EDM is because it is being cut in a cooled temperature surface and it never sees a, you know, some people might do like a laser cut mm-hmm. or they might machine it and a cutting generates heat right? and heat, it passes through the parts and it normalizes and it takes away true tempering for your final heat treat. So there would be hard, soft, hard, soft because of the way that on you the same piece of metal on the same piece of metal because of the way you blanked it. Okay. So the way that I've always done them is I do it in a submerged wire EDM mm-hmm. and how that works is it has a, a positive ion charge liquid in it. Mm-hmm. And there's a wire basically like a piano wire that runs down into that coolant tank. When that wire meets that positive uh, charge, it creates an arc. The arc itself, the electrical charge, is what physically cuts the metal. It seems very dangerous if you put your hand in there. Electrocution is possible? To be honest with you, you would have to be grounded to the wire, and the wire's moving. Okay. So it's about personally impossible. Well, that's good to to know, because I remember remember looking at it, I didn't realize how close I was to death, but that's good to know I wasn't. (laughs) I got to tell you, when we first got that machine in, the way it it automatically fills up with the... When you put your part in it and you start your cycle... It fills the water level up to the height of the part automatically. Okay. It senses that on its own. Okay. When we first got it in, the the, the it was so clear. I thought that it, the tank was empty and it had drained itself down, and I could open the door to get the part out. Right. It wasn't. <laughs> I opened that door and it dumped like thirty five gallons of stuff all over me. Right. Made a huge mess. And like you, I thought, oh my god, I'm going to get shocked to death. Yeah. You know, because I rolled that on me, but it, it can't. Do well, it. before we get into knives, I want to talk about something else because I knew you wouldn't use doing grips and knives, and I carry one of your knives with me. 
Thank you. Everywhere I go that you gave me. I, I'm really very proud of this. You said there's only a couple of these there's out there. There's only two, and I showed you both yeah. of them in the gun vault. Yep. And who's got the other one? You do. That's right. So, <laughs> so that's, that's how a, cool that knife and, is. And, and, you, and you told me to go everywhere I go, you better carry use it. It. It, better not, it better not be in your safe. And use so, and it. I, and use it. And I do. I think, that makes me nuts when we make user knives and people right. don't use them. Yeah, because when I, was, when I was first here, I think the first thing we did is like, I need to sharpen this. I've used it for a lot to do in the office. So, but how we met, because when I first had the idea, because in the in the, what I do with the shooting sports, a lot of people using guns all the time. Yes, sir. And in the twenty two world, another guns may break. Yes, sir. So I wanted to have an idea of service. You know, you know the story to, to have guns yep. in the van or back at the end is just on tables, right? To be able to let people use man, it. Man, you if, come so far. Oh, I'm so proud of you. <laughs> thank I, you so I, I wanna, much. I want to throw that out there that we're sitting in this and and I where we both came from five six yes. years ago. Yeah, there's no building I mean, here. There, no, there was no building, it, right? Yeah. I mean, yep. it, it's we've both come a long way, and it's well, it's really good to have you at EWD Designs. It's been really fun to have you in the shop. Uh, Hayden, who's the master yep. knife maker, you've got yep. to see kind of behind the curtains and actually making and Hayden spent some time with you. I yep. think that um, you have a really good understanding of EWD yep. and what we're doing. Well, here, I, so. I do. That's why I was excited to get you on the, the, the podcast to be able to talk, let people know about your story. I'll learn more about you today and I've known you for a while. Yeah, you so. know, I got to say, I was a little bit nervous when you're like, we're going to do this. I'm like, what are we going to talk about? Well, I can't tell you that because that'll ruin the podcast. Because I really don't know. So I'm sitting here and going, oh, no, what are we going to talk about? Because I really don't know myself until I got, we get into it's, it. Been, this is fun. It's fun. I'm having fun. Good. But there, there was a shooter that wanted to, you know, take one of my guns and customize it and do some things to the browning butt mark that I had. And he reached out to you about making some grips for the browning butt mark. That's correct. And this is a piece of a steel. Uh, what kind? I don't know what steel That's this aluminum, is. Actually. Aluminum, excuse me, 60, aluminum. Sixty-one. Aluminum. This sixty-sixty-one aluminum. And you, this is. I've got grips on my gun, but this is actually not even cut out yet. I mean, this is like a template, or what is? Yeah. You know? So when I when we CAD stuff up and we design it, uh, you know, it's it's one thing for to see it like on a computer screen, right? But there's just something about visually being <clears> able to look at your design and what we were looking at. We were looking at. Are these eyeglasses going to look cool or are they going to look stupid? Right. Uh, so this was, this actually was the very first example when I believe I did four sets of grips right. uh, for that gun. This right. was the first one that we did. Wow. And that's why it's here on the wall. When I saw um, it here, I was like going, hey, I recognize that. Yeah, it was, was kind of cool last night <laughs> yep. when you spun around and seen that. So go, that's, that's the original. It, it was so cool because you actually were one of the... You one of one of the creators and that helped with the very first custom gun for hunters I, HD for hunters gold. HD gold. I, I got to say, uh, we well, want another podcast about that, but um, I'm very proud of that grip design and what I because that is actually what made it on right. some of the grips that the logo and right. the way that and we the gentleman put it. you on a timer strike. But you had you yeah, had some that stuff was going really the worst. First of all, um, I thought. As a fledgling company, what a great opportunity to work, do work for Hunter's HD Gold. Right. I mean, that's really, that's really the only reason that uh, the gentleman was able to get me to do the project oh, wow. was for who it was for. Right. And we didn't uh, even know each other. We didn't even know each other. No, I just, not at all. I, you didn't know me, but I knew you. Okay. And I knew what you did for the shooting industry. I, I, Steve Foster 
I started doing grips. Uh, Steve Foster was an ambassador from EWD from pretty much day one. Right. Uh, he was. I was very fortunate that he fell in love with these USA flag grips. Mm -hmm. And I was working with Steve Foster to develop uh, grips for the Go Fast crowd, which right. are how the Velcro line, the Velcro grips came up. It, and then I worked with Luigi for the cut you. But we, yes. we're working with these different shooters to yep. develop different textures for the grips and because yep. of steve foster and you know i'll i i do this to steve foster because <laughs> he really is an amazing amazing yes, ambassador to yep. the sport uh family man all around great guy and one of the best shooters that i've ever uh yep. been watched or been associated with so i'm very honored that he liked my products and he liked my stuff and he was willing to get me uh to the next level by promoting my product because right, because luigi lee helped you with some of the aggressive designs because he the, wanted to, he wanted a more aggressive grip the actual yeah i uh and i'll tell a real quick story when you come up with a design and you think you've got it like this is what they're gonna want because i these this grip literally sticks to your skin right right when right. you grab it so the velcro name is very fitting i i never will forget it you and you and luigi's in the cabin and yeah. i i come in i'm all excited i'm like here luigi i did this for the competitive shooters and he's like yeah those are barbecue grips is what those are. I'm like, what? These are the most aggressive at the time. It was the most aggressive grip that I ever made. He goes, yeah, they're barbecue grips because that's what people put on their guns to take barbecue. Goes, You're not getting it, bro. We want it to cut us. We want it to hurt our hands yes. when we're, if I'm bleeding at the end of my run, I'm happy. Right. And it took that. To, for me to get what Luigi, you know, what the uh, go fast crowd was looking for, right. but that was how you know I got involved with uh, Luigi. And that, and we actually got you know some grips that are here because this is another story we'll get into because you have made some wonderful grips that have been just you know amazing. And I take it this is copper. Yes, that that is copper, well, and it's been shipwrecked. Uh, so we take an acid, uh, actually Hayden. Uh, my co-maker that works with DWD and I, right. he's the one that did the finishing on these. So basically what we do is we use a CNC sticker machine called a Cricut. Okay. And we can produce these any, pretty much it's a CNC machine tool, only it makes labels. So we can pretty right. much make any feature, anything that you want. And we polish the grip. We put those stickers on it. And then we spray a combination of turquoise and acid onto the copper and it immediately starts the decaying and looking old process right and then we spray a neutralizer on it when we get it to look the way that we want it to look and this is how this is the end result wow you can see it's almost got like barnacles yeah growing on it that's, right it, that's kind of cool yeah, yeah. These, these are my personal grips uh from, from what, yep. <laughs> these are not for sale by the way <laughs> i am a master mason and uh those are those are mine but as another person on the podcast said if you bring me a bag of money i can make all kind of stuff <laughs> you know what a long time ago that's exactly our motto we'll we'll roll with that that's right that's well right. And, and that's when you you know you got an idea you know that you wanted to make a, a fixed blade knife and you wanted to put some grips on there, which was a great idea. I love how you came up with that, but tell me about this blank piece of metal, because I know what the finished product is we have here that people can see that we'll talk about in a second, but this was another idea that you had, you know, to go out even outside the shooting world to get into a, to, to knife world altogether. So, um, 
I'm not going to get into names and of course, makers, of course, but of course. for the last 15 or 20 years, I have made a lot of knives. Okay. I've made folders, I've made fixed blades, I've made flipping knives, mm -hmm. but I always machine the components for makers. <clears throat> so, um, as with a private clientele list, very private, Yep. because to be honestly, none of the makers want anybody to know that they didn't do it all complete right. uh, in their own But house. they do want to know that it came from the United States of America, not somewhere out of another correct. country. Correct. Absolutely correct. So I uh, I always joke, I'm the redheaded stepchild that was in the shadows for 15 years making very famous people's knives right. and sending it to them. So I've always really wanted to be a knife have EWD Designs wanted to be a knife maker. Okay. But because of all the work that I did for all the other makers, it made them uncomfortable. I think I would have lost the business of blanking and machining yes. and EDM in their business if I would have rolled out with knives. That's so correct. to be totally honest, that's how the 1911 grips started. Right. Was it was a way for me to make a product about guns, and I'm a gun nut. I right. love guns. And get into the industry and be with the fellow knife makers and not be thought of as a threat. Okay, that makes sense. That somebody, so you gonna, wanted to do a soft area to get into, and, and that's where the grip. That's where the grips uh, came in. Makes sense. Um, makes sense. I I have the same relationship in the optical industry because I go right to the public with Hunter's HD Gold and a lot of the doctors and stuff. You know, we don't want to upset our accounts that we already have. So right. We we they're don't. sending you their, their client yeah, stuff. So and if they feel that you're competing with them, then right. they're not going to want to send you their that work. That is the exact so same exactly story. exactly where I was at for exact like 15 same story. years. Yep. You know, and uh, I reached an age in my life. Uh, my my father-in-law was a president of a Knife Guild here in Ohio. He put on a couple big knife shows each year. And I started making uh, stuff with him and a few other makers to where... Uh, just for myself or like one or two customers, I didn't go into, I'm a knife maker. We got 30 of these in process that right. cost X amount. Uh, I kept it pretty soft. So right. I think I reached a, a plateau with the customers and with the major makers of the knife makers mm -hmm. that I'd been around long enough that there was enough comfort zone that I thought it was time for me to come out with a knife. Right. So then the next problem is. What do you do that doesn't look close to anybody else's stuff? Right. To where they don't feel that you're taking this tribal knowledge that you had about their locking mechanisms, their swivels, their mm -hmm. types of materials, how they're coating them, how they're coloring them. And so there was a, uh, you know, for me, a decision, how do I do this? And then a friend of mine. Yep. Brian Conley <laughs> is up to the farm. Were we hunting? What were we doing? Well, I, we, I don't remember. I think we came up for, um, it might have been Area 5 a long time ago with, at Zanesville. Okay. And that's when Briar, me and Wood, Briar, Briar Wood at Briar okay. Rabbit. Yep. And uh, somebody had gifted him mm -hmm. a 1911 knife. And mm -hmm. he's like, bro, I need, I need a set of grips for this knife. And I'm like, cool, man. You know me. I got yep. like... We had 30, 40 sets in process. Yep. Come on, we'll have, put have credit card. We'll travel. Uh, nah, you know, <laughs> we will, we will, we'll hook you up because it was a really cool uh, concept and idea that it was a, a 1911 knife and it, it used 1911 grips. Now, 
so I thought, and, and I'm this isn't a new invention. What EWD is doing, right. obviously, Brian came with one. And right. I think Bull Knives is mm -hmm. who made that. Yep, Bull Arm. And, yep. and they've got a very cool knife, by the way. Yep. It's very cool, and the uh, sheaths and everything they have made first class. So I'm thinking, I'm looking at, it, I'm like, well, why can't I make? Why can't my that none of the makers that I make knives for or with right. had any were doing anything like this. Right. So it was a perfect opportunity for me to number one sell more grips. Right. But also come out with my own first knife. Uh, and you and what kind of material did you choose? So this is CV twenty. Um, it is a surgical grade stainless steel. Okay. So it me that this grade of material holds a really good sharp edge. Okay. And that that the it has the highest content of nickel in stainless. So it's very very rust resilient. Okay. Um, it also heat treats very evenly, which means that you carry a sharpness through your cut edge better than other knives. Right. There's no hard soft hard soft. It's very evenly treated. All right. What is the hardness level of that? So um, when we process it like this, it's dead soft. Uh, we will take this blank. After it's EDM, then we will dip it in liquid nitrogen. We'll use, it's called a doer, and we'll freeze it to like 300 uh, degrees below Celsius. Holy cow. And what that does is it closes all the open pores and nodules that are in the steel. So it literally makes a very dense material, the densest that it can be. Okay. And then from that point, you're able to put, you're able to heat treat it to a much higher heat treat range that will retain sharpness uh, much more than any uh, example of another knife <clears throat> steel to it. And, you know, there's a million different grades of steel. People believe in 1095. People believe in tool steel. Um, you know, it, it's pretty much up to the maker what you feel is the But you've the been doing steel. this for 30 plus years 37 now. years. 37 years. In, uh, you, metal. And, I, I, and, and making stuff for, you know, government. Aerospace every, every, and government. I know. You really, knew what steel to pick. I knew what, that this was a steel for me. Right. Now, the bad side of that is it's very expensive. Oh, I, I, it, it, yeah. It's not. So if you're making knives, it's not one that everybody utilizes because right. it's not cheap material. Right. Just not. And, and raw cost of materials raw cost of material makes plays everything a big part. get more expensive. Yes, sir. Yep. Yes, sir. That's so cool. Because what you've actually done is you've taken the Luigi grip design. You know, I got to say this next to the USA with. flags, Luigi's, the cut you grips. Those are my hottest seller. Yeah. And we offer those in uh, black, yellow, gold, a, a range of colors. And they make so many different knives and guns. I right. mean. Uh, they're they're a very cool grip because you actually made this, but you actually put a mirror finish on it. I mean, that's one of those things that you know we'll trade here, but yeah. that's one of those things where that's just not something that you can you just you just don't do a mirror finish overnight, do you? So most companies, in my experience of watching and being around them, they come up with like an everyday Joe knife. They're like 150 bucks, 200 bucks, ones that you carry and use. Yeah. And then as their business grows or gets good, they'll come up with a pinnacle knife, which mm -hmm. is something like this. Right. And EWD designs are my thoughts have always been we do the pinnacle stuff that nobody else wants to do. We'll put the effort and the time in to make the product. I don't know how good well, the, the picture is going to show it up. But. Well, it'd be in my office. And when people come by to see, do a lab tour, they'd be there for people to see. But it's it's a complete mirror finish besides the actual blade part. Because you actually did a different kind of sanding. On so this is a two-tone brush effect is okay. what we did. Um, but you took this 
piece of raw material yes, and put a mirror finish on it with sandpaper. That is correct. <laughs> there was no machines involved. It was uh, so for your knife, yeah. there's probably about 60 hours of bench work uh, just cow. in mirroring it. Mm-hmm. We start out with like uh, 120 grit. We go to 300. We go to 600. We go to 900. We'll go to 12. We go to 1500. 3,000, 3,500, 4,000, 4,500, and we top out around 5,000. Now, each one of those grades of sandpaper that I'm talking to you about, mm-hmm. you have to rub every feature of this knife right. and get it to the mirrored exact that you can get with that. So it's not like you just rub that and then you grab another piece of sandpaper and you rub that. Right. It is a process. Wow. It's very labor intensive. But um, I've decided that I'm just going to do pinnacle knives. I'm not going to come out with, you're never going to see a $150 knife uh, come out of EWD design. Right. We're making heirlooms. Um, these are kind of the bases of the 1911 builds right now. But we're working on some rope designs. We're going to be doing some gold inlaying. Yeah. Um, we're going to be doing some different things with lasers and artwork and um, there's going to be some exciting things come out of us in the next six to eight months. And also you're wanting to get, be a part of the shooting sports as well to help support that in ways for people to give back to the shooting sports as well in the future. So I that's have, exciting. I have, uh, I do, uh, donate product. Uh, yeah. I do, uh, give product to shooters, uh, I, whatever I can do to help the industry. There's right now, there's like four or five guys that I'm really close with that, right. I'm giving product to them that they can use to auction off, raise money for the shooting event. Right. And I love kids and I love servicemen and and, uh, first responders have a big heart uh, for those guys. And I try to help them out with funds and fundraisings and charity events and things like that. Because we are here in Ohio, which really shocked me. I've I've drove down the road and I've seen um, lots of signs I never (laughs) thought I would see. That we won't discuss on here at all, but it's it's a situation where you know I, I've seen stuff here in Ohio, Columbus or Zanesville outside of Ohio. I wish we could talk Newark. about what we seen. Yeah. Last, all the pictures we stopped. Yeah. Some of the stuff I, I usually don't see that stuff in Alabama, but there's a nice redneck feel up yes, here sir. where they don't, you know, they like their freedom. Yes, sir. They love their freedom. And, yes, sir. And for you, the same way that the Second Amendment must mean everything to it you. Does. It based does. on what you've seen that you've actually been making back from when you were just a teenager and everything else and all the stuff that you've had to, you know, do. Cause even to have a gun here in Ohio, you just, I think you just got constitutional carry not too long ago. I'm right? very happy. You know, um, last year, last year, and I was part of the proponents that bugged our senators and Congress. We Wonderful. passed, we passed the knife manufacturing switchblade law in Ohio last year. So, up until last year, it was illegal to carry a switchblade. Right. And in Ohio now, it is legal not only to carry it, but you can make them. And you were part of that process? I was. Well, nice. I'm, there were several makers of in course. Ohio, and all we did, we kept the pressure on. Um, a couple of friends of mine, more so than me, but whenever it took bodies for people to get the impression that these knife guys are serious about this, right. I always am front and foremost there, too, as well. So we got we got the knife meaning we're allowed to manufacture um, switchblades in Ohio now. Mm-hmm. Call them automatic knives. I call them switchblades. Out the front, whatever you want to call them. Out the front, whatever yep. you want to call them. Yep. And uh, we, Hayden and I, do have some stuff that we're not ready to Right. Uh, show or talk about, but we're working on some automatic stuff. Uh, we've got a cam system that I'm wanting to manufacture for the first time. 
that should pretty much revolutionize how anybody's got automatics to function. So you're taking and some I knowledge. shared a little bit of that. You with did. You last and I'm not going. I won't talk about it. But you're fixing to do some things that yeah, hasn't I'm, been done before. Exactly. And we'll definitely, when something gets made, we'll have something that people can come see. Absolutely. Because if you're doing something that no other knife maker's ever done before, based that's on what, your knowledge, that's what we're trying to do. That's insane to me. That's yep. that's so cool. Because so many people want to, with that kind of knowledge, would take the easy way out and just try to make money and get out. You're trying to revolutionize. Yeah, we stuff we, that's being done EWD, in industry. Uh, I, that is my core, my core belief that that I want to do. I mm-hmm. want to do what nobody else wants to do. If somebody came to you and wanted you to make them a gun, would that be ever something you want to do in the future? You know, um, what, what, when, yes, uh, we we want to offer that service. We have the capabilities of building it, um, but for licensing and so right. forth. You have to have your own facility. It has to meet certain requisites. And as you can see, this building's fresh year old. I mean, I just got the facility built. We're learning about what all it requires to get that and Mm -hmm. do that. And I'll be honest with you, uh, you know, the general public about guns and gun manufacturing Mm -hmm. uh, is is not in a good place. Not right now. And... My concerns for my future of my company and and my people is we really got some good stuff going on with these knives. Yes, you do. And do I want to push that uh, to into the gun manufacturing at a time when this country has got so much upheaval and internal (laughs) stife over guns and and people carrying them and using them? Right. I believe that I put that on hold. Uh, I do have components that I'm going to be manufacturing and releasing for other makers to put into there. But as far as having a build from A to Z, Mm -hmm. that's not in my cards in the near future. Yeah, we do have some mutual friends that um, that you've been working with, so that's kind of cool. We won't get into that today. But, you know... How can people get in touch with you, Elsie? It's just one of those things that, you know, I, I've known so much about to learn, learn more today, but it's, you know, how can people get in touch with you? So they I have get a really grips? cool uh, website. Mm-hmm. You can go visit, uh, just uh, plug in www.ewddesigns. Um, all of my Instagram and uh, Facebook posts go to my website. So there's an, there's, and I, I also sell other makers things. Like if I see something that you made and it's just cool mm-hmm. and you know, you, and you're okay with me promoting your product. I've got a few products on my website that I, and I have pictures of the makers and show it. I've got yeah. a pretty cool website that's interactive that you can go to. If you don't want to talk to anybody, you don't have to, you can right. click and shopping cart and buy. Uh, so the easiest way, if you don't want to go through the social media to be able to, not only see what we have in inventory, but the projects that we're working on mm-hmm. is to go to my website because everything is funneled to that. That's so cool. So cool. And, you know, our address is 10411 Eddie Burger Road, yes, Newark, Ohio. Yeah. Uh, you're welcome to come visit us at any time. Uh, we we welcome There's a lot of people, uh, listen people to, this. to come uh, <laughs> visit. And that's one of the great things uh, about this business that makes me love it so much is right. the people that I get to react. I, I honestly don't know who's going to stop in next. And it's right. so cool. I mean, so for me, I've always been, hey, if you ever get to Ohio, you know, I've sold five, 6,000 sets of grips, you right. know, right. and 
and I, sometimes people come, oh, I bought these grips off you like eight years ago. And you look at it and you're like, oh, man, can I have those back? Let me give you one of the ones that, <laughs> that I just did. And I'm like, oh, no, no. These are, I'm like, and you're thinking to yourself, my God, I sold that. And by the time you make the first ones and you get to the end and you see some of like the first two or three years of what you're made, you're right. like, oh. Uh, so we enjoy, we, I get a lot of drop-in people. Right. Uh, and I welcome anybody to stop in and see the show and meet, meet my guys and, yeah. and, Spend some time with us. Uh, if you got some guns you want to shoot, yeah, we can shoot out the three hundred uh, yards out the back cool. shooting range. That's pretty cool. Uh, and if you want to go six hundred, we can make that happen too. All right. So everybody's always welcome to stop by, and we can shoot some guns and fire up the gas grill and feed them a little bit. Let them hang out in the shop and ask the makers any ignorant question that they want to ask. Yeah, I, I kept I kept some of your staff busy the other day asking a lot of questions, that's for sure. Hayden <laughs> enjoyed that. You, you actually know, so for me, like you brought, hey, I need to sharpen. You yeah. got to see the machine and how yeah. it's set Because I asked him, I said, do you want to teach me how to do this? He goes, yeah. And all of a sudden, I, I said, can I mess this up? He goes, oh yeah, you can mess it up bad. <laughs> I said, well, let me just let you do this then and I'll watch. I don't want to mess anything up. So I was like, you know, I, I got to say, I, when, I backed out quick. <laughs> when it comes to these knives with mirrored finishes that take you 60, 80 hours <laughs> to get to them in a nanosecond on a grinder, right? you can take yourself back to zero. <laughs> that's not what I want. And I think, well, I do it to myself all the time and so do the guys. I mean, right. it happens. If you're making stuff, it right. happens, you know, but right. yeah. We, anybody's always welcome to come see us. Um, so and, cool. you know, recently, like with your commander, uh, yes, that you yep. want me to yep. make. You're making some grits from my night. So yep. you get two or three people that everybody wants. To, if, if you, if I'm aware that there's a, a need from people that want, have the same style of gun. Right. You know, right now I only make the full size 1911. That's grits. right. And one thing I do want to mention that we did, uh, when we came up with our design is, we took all the major makers and we encompassed their math. So it doesn't matter if it's a Remington, uh, if it's a Colt, Colt Browning, uh, Browning, mm -hmm. whatever the maker is. And the, the only thing that's commonality on all those different guns is a center line to center line dimension mm -hmm. for the, the screws. Everything else, if you're trying to make a grip that fits that gun, there's all kinds of interference, places where you need notches to be able to knock pins out. Right. Uh, double ansidextrous safety if they're machined out for that. Right. So we took all the major makers and we made the math of my grips work to where it doesn't matter what the make of the gun is. Right. My grips will fit on them because of how we played with the math. Right. From all the different guns and the really bad news was I had to have every one of those so I could validate that <laughs> the grips work. And that right. was kind of fun to the wife, you know what I mean? I got to have that gun because I need to make sure that these grips don't interfere with that thumb lock. And it, it made sense to right. her for that. That's well, joking. No, I love it because, you know, I remember when I was at um, Classic Nationals a, a year ago, I took a bunch of your grips with me and, and, and sold some of them Yes, you did. You. I, Thank I you like, very I much. Like, I was like, wow. You are a great ambassador for EWD Design. Well, I can't thank you enough. When I met you and, and saw how, you know, you weren't working with anybody else, you were taking stuff from the ground up yourself 
And that was so impressive to me because the vision that you have and, and the passion that you put into everything in your heart means the world to me. And that's what we had. That's why we get along so well, because there's so much things you're wanting to do. You you saw my love for the shooting sports. We have the fire. Yes, we have the yes. fire. And yes, sir. When you saw my love for the shooting sports, you're like, hey, I want to do that. And, and you're my brother from another mother. You know <laughs> I appreciate that. that. You know that. But, you know, you know, thank you so much for sitting down with me today. And is there anything else we left off? No, uh, you know, I, I'm excited to get to hang out with you. It's been a couple of years. It's been, nice. it's been a while. I, I mean, we talk all the time, but they get yep. to hang out. Yeah, uh, I, I got to go to I'm California look- and other areas of the United States where, you know, I, just, I got to go. Yeah, other I'm matches. just dragging you to the pizza <laughs> joints in the mountain and the drag it's, racing strips. It's and, been, uh, it has been awesome. <laughs> good. It's been so I'm glad much you're fun. enjoying yourself. Well, if you ever want to see, well, you know, uh, when you when you want to see some of Elsie's um, 1911 grips or see some of the stuff he's done, Done. I've got it in the back of the van of the Magical Mystery Tour. I've got some of his um, the cut grips that Luigi came up with that are on the Colt, you know, nineteen eleven that I've got in the. Do you have any of my nineteen eleven wrenches and stuff in here? Um, I I've got the not yes, I got one nineteen eleven wrench left in so there we as well. We got some new titanium wrenches that were flame. From- uh, coloring with heat, not so, electrolytes. Yep. So there'll be I got some, some new stuff to put in there. Nice. So there's going to be some 1911 grips in there, you know, wrenches as well. So it'd make it easy to take your 1911 apart. So lots of things that we're going to work with um, LC and EWD Design Zone for the future. We've had a lot of great discussion and business discussions this weekend, but he told you how to get in touch with them. And there's anything you need at all. And you, you forget to get in touch, how, how to get in touch with LC, just email me at info at huntershdgold.com and I'll make sure he gets it. But until next time, We'll see you at the range soon. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, Brian.